So for the talk this evening, first evening talk is always I always find it a little bit difficult, and and I and I and I, it feels a little bit a um, little bit difficult because um, there are so few of you here who I know. It's um, almost entirely new new people, new to me, and so just to to <coughs> to get a sense of. <coughs> of kind of where you're at and what your level of understanding is is a little bit difficult. And so what I'd like to try to do this evening is kind of um, give something for everyone. <laughs> so um, what I'd like to do is, is give, um, for those of you, there are quite a few on the retreat who are, who are new or fairly new to the practice and new to the tradition. And so I'd like to give a little bit of historical background and context for the practice, and then I'd like to um, to give perhaps a sense of who um, don't really like the language, but a sense of where the practice is leading to, and what it actually means to practice. Um, a little bit of exploration of again of what is meditation and. And also, uh, uh, and also, a little bit about insight. What is what is meant by insight? So, just um, to begin um, very briefly, as the the historical context, as as I'm sure you're aware, being here at Guy House, the the insight meditation comes from the teachings and the practices of the Buddha. And for the, I might just mention. I, I know some of you are probably quite familiar with this story and um, and I and I'd, I'd like to give encouragement to to um, um, to, to just to just to stay open just to stay open and and to re- to really listen even though you've heard it before just to listen because I, I know for myself I can hear exactly the same talk over and over again, and each time I hear something different in it. Just pick out, you know, maybe just a word that I just hadn't picked up on before. And so if we can let go of the idea, oh yeah, I've heard this before, I know this already, and just just stay, just stay open, receptive, be receptive. So the, the Buddha, the Buddha was born about 2,600 years ago in... Um, southern part of Nepal, just just over the border from India. And um, he was born into a family, his, his father is commonly described or translated in the text as, a, as the king, but I would say he was probably more like a governor, because the, the kingdom was under the rule of a neighboring, much larger kingdom. And so he was more like a governor. But whatever his title... Uh, the Buddha was born into an incredibly wealthy family, and he had um, everything everything he could want. In fact, anything he wanted, they made sure that he got. Uh, his father, his father was his mother died in childbirth, and he was raised by his aunt. And his um, his father was determined to keep the Buddha, the young. Prince, the young, the young man, happy, 
because he wanted him to stay in the palace and take over, take over the the family company. That's what you call it in England, isn't it? The company? Yes. <laughs> so he wanted him to take over the company. And um, and when the Buddha was born, uh, there was this uh, this this man Asita who was known as a as a very wise sage. And and the story is that Asita followed a star and came from the east to uh, to see the Buddha after he was born. This is twenty six hundred years ago. <laughs> and, um, and when Asita saw the Buddha, the Buddha, the baby, he broke out crying. And the Buddha's father said, "What's wrong? What's wrong?" And um, and he said, "There's there's nothing wrong." He said, "But this this baby is going to grow up to be a great leader of men, and I'm going to die before I can hear him teach." And so the the Buddha's father was concerned, didn't want the Buddha to become a great teacher and take off. He wanted to stay, so he did everything to make him happy. As all parents do, don't they? Parents want to do whatever it takes to keep a child happy and to give the child a good upbringing and really take care of the child. But the Buddha's father went to quite extreme. I won't go into the extremes that he went to. Anyway, so the Buddha, the Buddha grew up in this, in this family with anything he wanted, everything, the finest of everything, just tremendous wealth and power and authority and status and um, secure job security, just everything you could imagine that would give you a good life. And and the Buddha the Buddha grew up with this, and he um, and he came at one point he came to realize that really within his being he wasn't happy. He wasn't satisfied. He wasn't at peace. And he, in, in, in the extreme that his father went to protect him, um, was that he was basically confined to the palace, actually confined to three palaces for his life, for, for growing up. And, and at one point, after he, he became aware of this, this inner turmoil, this inner angst, this inner questioning, he persuaded his attendant to take him out of the palace and let him see what's going on outside of those walls. And his attendant took him out and he saw an old person and he saw a sick person and he saw a dead person. And with each of these, he turned to his attendant and he said, what's that? And the attendant said, that's an old person, a sick person, a dead person. And the attendant said, and one day you too will be old, one day you too will be sick, and one day you too will be dead. And the Buddha, boy, didn't like this idea at all. Imagine having grown up with everything you want and all this wealth and power, and then being told you're going to get old and sick and die. And this really stirred up questioning in, in the Buddha. And it made him recognize. It made him recognize within his being um, what's what's expressed in Pali. Pali is the language of the Buddha's teachings, and he came to realize to to experience what's expressed in Pali as dukkha. 
And this word dukkha, you'll see it most commonly translated as suffering. And he recognized he was suffering. Now, suffering is not the greatest translation. Um, There are other translations. Dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness is actually a a little bit closer, I think, to the intent. Um, The current contemporary translation is stress. And I think that's something we could all relate to. When the Buddha came to a point in in his spiritual career where he had to define dukkha, he, he gave a, a whole long definition, and basically what it comes down to is wanting things to be different than they are. Dukkha is wanting things to be different than they are. And he recognized in himself wanting to not get old, wanting to not get sick, wanting to not die, and yet facing the reality that this would happen. These events would happen in his life. And so, so what he wanted and what the reality was, there was a huge gap. A huge gap. And I'm, I'm sure all of us in, in some way in our lives have, have recognized a gap between what we would like and what actually is. How many times today was there a gap between what you would like and what actually was? what your experience actually was. And wherever there's this gap, no matter how large or how small and subtle that gap is, this is dukkha. And the Buddha recognized this dukkha and he he made a, a commitment to himself to find a way of living in this world, of being in this world completely free from dukkha completely liberated from dukkha. And so he um, grew up a little more, got married, had a baby, and he decided, this is enough dukkha. <laughs> and he, he, he left the palace. He abandoned. He abandoned his family, abandoned his, his career, his kingly career, abandoned all his wealth, gave up, left everything. Talk about renunciation. And he left. Now, to put this into a historical context, this actually was the tradition at the time. The Buddha did it a little bit early in his life. But the tradition was that you would grow up, you would get married, you would have a child, you would have a job, and save up enough money. This was for the man, of course. Save up enough money that the the, the family would be taken care of, but then you could take off on your spiritual quest. And so the Buddha followed this tradition. He just kind of um, shortened his <laughs> the span. But of course, doing this knowing that his family would be taken care of. And so he left, and, and, and it's recorded that he spent the next six or seven years, depending on what tradition you you read or follow, he spent the next six or seven years in very intensive ascetic practices. And the intention, the intention with the ascetic practices was to wear down, to wear, to wear out all these wanting things to be different than they are. 
and to wear it out by wearing out the self that wants Basically, you really hear there's a, there's this phrase. There's, there's even yeah. There's a there was a book called um, "If You Meet the Buddha, Kill Him," and there's this phrase, you know, "Kill the ego, get rid of the ego, destroy the ego," and this is basically what they were trying to do. And and the Buddha spent six or seven years doing very intensive practices in this direction and involved very, very intense concentration practices and very intense ascetic practices. And I'm not going to go into the There's pages of, of him describing the practices he did and some of them, oh boy. And the odd thing about it is that if you travel around in India today, you still see people doing these same, these same practices. But the Buddha spent these years doing these practices, and at the end of the years, he came to a point where he realized that all that was happening was he was getting weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker. And he was nowhere near the ending of dukkha. And so he decided that there had to be another way. And he recalled at that point, he recalled a moment when he was sitting under a tree watching his father do um, a spring planting ceremony. He was plowing the first furrow to plant the, the spring crop. And he remembered, he remembered sitting under the tree and being absolutely still and not doing anything. Just sitting and becoming aware of his breathing and paying attention to his breathing. And he remembered this as being an incredibly peaceful moment. And he thought, ah, maybe there's something here. Maybe there's something here. And so he went and he sat down under a tree and he paid, a bit, paid attention to his breathing. He just sat and he allowed the body to breathe without controlling it and just opening to the experience of breathing. And through the course of the night, he came to a number of insights so that by the end of the night, by the, by the morning, he was, he was able to declare, I know the ending of Dukkha. I'm awake. And this was his awakening, his, his enlightenment, his liberation. And then from there he went on to teach. And he began his teaching by summing up his, his insights. And he summed up his insights in four statements. And the first statement is, in life there is dukkha. And, and this is, it's, I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? <laughs> When we understand what dukkha means, it's obvious that yes, there is dukkha. We've all experienced it. We all know. We all know dukkha once we understand what it means. But when he, in in making this statement, the Buddha he's not just pointing out there is dukkha. We already know that. What he's what he's pointing out is the first step to awakening is to wake up to the fact of dukkha to really wake up to the fact of dukkha. And in terms of the practice, what he's saying is 
Pay attention to dukkha. Don't run away from it, which is our normal, our normal tendency. Pay attention to it. <coughs> Stay with it. Open to it. Experience it. Really get to know dukkha. And in that process of really getting to know, really getting to understand dukkha, we lead into the second, his second statement, which was, the cause of dukkha is craving. The cause of dukkha is craving. Craving <coughs> to get what we want and don't have, and craving to get rid of what we have and don't like. Now, if you look at your practice today, look at your times today in the qigong, in the sitting, how many times have you had an experience of wanting to get rid of something you have that don't, you don't like? You know, maybe some restlessness, maybe some tiredness, maybe a pain, maybe some chatter going on in the mind, endless thoughts. I want to get rid of it. I want to get rid of it. And here's this gap. The gap between what we want and what actually is. And then the other, the other side of it, wanting to get what we want and don't already have. Wanting to get maybe more ease, more comfort, more pleasure, more concentration. Um, a softer cushion, um, um, a shorter qigong session, uh, <laughs> a shorter sitting session. Countless things that we want, we want to get, thinking that getting these things will bring us satisfaction. And of course, when we get something we want, we do get temporary satisfaction. But how quickly the mind starts to look for something else. We get something, we're happy, we settle with it, we take it for granted, and we start looking for something else. And the Buddha used the phrase to describe this. He said, the mind goes, now here, now there. Now here, now there. Now here, now there. This is dukkha. And so in the understanding of dukkha, we come to this, this understanding. The cause of dukkha is this craving. And then this leads to the third statement. The third statement is the ending of dukkha. And of course, if craving is the cause of dukkha, then the ending of dukkha is the ending of this craving. Okay, makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> Very logical. And again, if we, look, if we look at our own lives, perhaps you've had some experience today where there's, there's, been, there's been some dukkha showing in, in some way and somehow you've been able to find some space with it, whatever it is. It could be a pain, could be a restless mind, um, could be any number of things. And, and, and perhaps you've had the, and, and I know some of you have had the experience today of, of somehow finding space with that, somehow opening being receptive to it, and in that receptivity, that, that openness, that being present with, 
gone. The dukkha is gone. And it doesn't always mean that the thing itself, it doesn't necessarily mean that that painful sensation is gone. It doesn't necessarily mean that whatever it is that we're struggling with is gone. But that that wanting it to be different in the spaciousness, that wanting it to be different is gone and the whole relationship changes. In that change of relationship, the dukkha just gone. Now how many have had an experience today where they say where you've been able to find that that spaciousness and whatever has been bugging you it's just it just doesn't matter anymore. I saw a few hands go up. Good. And then the fourth statement, the, four, the Buddha's fourth statement, was that there is a path. There's a path. There's a path that will guide us to this understanding. And um, and and he he outlined the path in in eight eight parts. Eight, yeah, eight parts. I hesitate to say eight steps because it's not necessarily a linear one after the other thing. And and this um, and the path outlines the the path, <laughs> the practice. And it has three components to it. The first component is uh, well, the order is a little bit different. Um, so one component is an ethical component, right speech, right action, right livelihood. And we spoke last night about how that's the foundation. That, that ethical life gives us a foundation for the practice. So there's the ethical aspect. Then there's, there's the, the, the practice aspect. And the, pra- the practice aspect <coughs> includes mindfulness <coughs> and concentration, and it also includes effort. And we talk a lot about effortlessness, about not doing, about just being. And it, it's very important, but it's also important to know that it, at times it's appropriate and necessary to make some effort. And so as an example, it could be just the effort that it takes to open again to the body when the mind is just going... It's skillful in that case to make some effort just to settle again with the body. It's just just one example of the skillful application of effort. So this is the, the practice part. And then there's a wisdom part. And the wisdom part has to do with understanding these four statements, the understanding of these four statements, and it has to do with intention. I mentioned intention. I mentioned intention last night. The Buddha gave um, renunciation as part of the intention. And the intention has two other parts to it, and they are non-harming and non-ill will. So these are, these are what the Buddha stated as the intentions with the practice and the intentions with life, because we can see this path, this eightfold path, covers all aspects of life. The intentions for renunciation, 
for simplicity, for respect for life, for respect for the environment and awareness of our impact on the environment and on each other and on ourselves and and living in a way that we're causing that we're not causing harm and living without ill will very powerful intentions very difficult intentions easy intentions but difficult to live up to and so in a way the practice is all pointing us in the direction of these intentions so the practice the practice so what is what is the practice the practice as we've said begins with the ethical foundation and then mindfulness mindfulness becomes the foundation and when we look at all the aspects of the of the eightfold path we can see how mindfulness is essential if we want to cultivate an ethical life we have to have mindfulness we have to be aware of when we're acting unethically and then have the awareness have the mindfulness to draw on our intention the intention for non-harming, for non-ill will. With the practice, certainly, we see if mindfulness is the foundation. Without mindfulness, we'll never notice when the attention is just going, the mind is just going, no, 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 no. We just get caught up in the stories and we think, oh, this is wonderful. 45 minutes sitting, whew, gone like that. <laughs> it's very easy if I just go into my stories and just, kind of drift along for the 45 minutes and then the bell rings, oh, that was fast. Much harder if I just stay with my dukkha. So mindfulness brings us back. Mindfulness re-centers us, re-grounds us. Mindfulness, I think the peak experience of mindfulness is in the moment when you recognize that the attention has gone off and you come back. That's a moment of very powerful mindfulness. That's real presence of knowing what is. And so when the attention goes off and you have to make a little bit of effort to come back, there's mindfulness at work there. Don't, you know, don't be upset that you went off. Celebrate that you saw it, you recognized it. You recognize it, and you're able to begin again. This is to be celebrated, to be rejoiced in. It's a wonderful thing. So mindfulness is the foundation for for all the different aspects of the path. And um, I spoke a little bit about mindfulness last night and this morning, and... And, and so mindfulness is this, this important foundation and mindfulness brings us presence, that sense of being present. Mindfulness brings us clarity. Mindfulness brings us wakefulness, alertness. Um, mindfulness certainly contributes to calmness. Uh, it's, it's just so important and, and so powerful, just mindfulness in itself. 
But the Buddha, the Buddha goes on and he says, mindfulness, as important as it is and as wonderful as it is, in itself it's not enough for true awakening. It's not enough for the true ending, the knowing of the ending of dukkha. And he then he brings in another quality which has to go hand in hand with mindfulness. And that quality, the Buddha, the Buddha referred to it, he termed it um, investigation of states. A quality of investigation of states. And what it means, it's an investigation. Investigation means as well as being mindful of the experience in the present moment, it's also being mindful with real interest in it. It's really taking interest in it. So I can be mindful of my breathing, just oh, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in, breathing out. Oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but to really take interest in it, an interest that really draws the attention to the experience and, and, and helps to highlight it. You know, it's like, um, it's like you can watch a, a movie, you can watch one movie and you can sort of watch the movie and you can drift along through it and you can follow it and you can, um, at the end, you can say, oh yeah, the movie was about this and this and this and this. And then you can watch another movie and it just draws your interest and you just really present with it and you you feel the emotions in the movie you relate to the characters Um, you jump when something frightening happens because there's this 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 interest that draws you in and so this this investigation of states has this quality of really being interested in what it is interested in not so much what it is, but how is it? Interested in how is it? And this is the investigation of states, the investigation of the state of the object, of the nature of the object. How is it? So this, so the, the, the mindfulness and the investigation factor together function to really hold and sustain the attention with the object. And the more we can hold and sustain the attention with the object, not through striving and through effort and through struggle and trying to clamp onto it and hold on to it, but through being interested in it. Through being interested and in the, and really allowing for that settling with it, then through that through a continuity of presence with the object, then the states, the nature of the object begins to show itself. As I mentioned, the 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 definition of of insight is this intuitive knowing without thinking. And so, so the insight, the understanding of the nature doesn't come from thinking about it, trying to figure it out, 
comparing it to something else, um, remembering how it was, thinking about how it's going to be. But it's, it's a revelation. It's a revelation that comes in the silence and stillness of being fully present with the object and interested in, in the presence of these two qualities, the mindfulness and the investigation factor, is the possibility for this, this revelation of the nature of the object and the nature of the object becomes known in a way that it's known that the nature of one thing is the nature of all things. The Buddha identified three key insights. And the investigation of the investigation of states, the investigation factor is directed at knowing these three, coming to know these three insights. And the first the first insight is that things are impermanent. Things change. And I think if we think about it intellectually, we know, we know that everything changes. Everything. There's nothing that doesn't change. I mean, certainly you've seen, you've felt your bodies change today different sensations, different places at different times. First there's a pain here and then it's gone, and then there's a pain here and then it's gone. There's a a thought that goes through the mind and that thought ends and then another thought comes. The body-mind is constantly changing. And Brad Brad was talking about um, how there's all this space and, and so little matter here. And there's the appearance of matter because within this space, the molecules are all moving so fast that it gives the appearance of, ma- of mass, of solidity. And so it's, it's, it's a kind of a, a paradox that it appears to be solid because it's constantly, constantly changing. It's like um, when you have a, a spoked wheel and you start spinning it at a certain speed, you don't see the spokes anymore. It looks like a solid wheel. Have you seen that? The change gives the illusion of solidity, of non-change. And so this, so this first insight is this, is this real deep and profound opening to the fact of change. And what's the impact of that? To really get that things are changing. If we really get it, we see that we can't hold on to things. We can't keep. If there's something we like and we want to keep it, we want to hold on to it, you know, maybe the last sitting was a really good sitting and I want to keep that. At the end of the retreat, you'll say, how can I take this home with me? You can't. Because things change. Things change. 
and and the and the and the 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 waking up to this fact, the waking up to this fact brings this knowing it can't be held on to, and it brings a releasing of the grip. It brings spaciousness. It brings openness. It brings receptivity. It brings an end to dukkha. And so, one aspect of the investigation of states is the Buddha, over and over again, somebody would come to him and say, oh, I had this experience and this happened, and what about this and what about that? And the Buddha would say, is it permanent or impermanent? And the realization of the impermanence of it, and then again, the realization not in an intellectual way, not through thinking about it, figuring it out, but from direct experience in that knowing is letting go, the release, the liberation. The second, the second insight, the second insight that he points to is the understanding that things have a quality of unsatisfactoriness and it's, it's, it's interesting, it's a little bit confusing because the word that's here used here in Pali is dukkha. Things have a quality or a characteristic of dukkha. And it's very much related to the fact that they change. Because things change, we can't rely on them. Okay? And because we can't rely on things, we can't rely on things to give us lasting happiness... We can't rely on things to always stay the way they are. We can't rely on things to be with us all the time. Because of this unreliability, things have a quality of unsatisfactoriness. They can't bring lasting satisfaction. And again, that, that, that insight, the, the, the knowing of that, the deep, deep knowing that anything, anything that exists, because it's changing, it won't bring lasting satisfaction. And if I try to hold it, if I have an expectation of it bringing lasting satisfaction, this is dukkha. I'm setting myself up for dukkha. And so again, with the knowing... The realization of that is this. Okay. Don't need to. Whatever it is that's here, it's here right now. I can enjoy it, appreciate it, use it, but not hold on to it, not cling to it. And the third, the third insight, the third insight is. Um, is, I would say, the most profound and, and with its understanding, I would say the most... No, I can't say the most liberating. <laughs> liberating is liberating. Uh, the, most, the most profound. Um, and the, the, this, this third insight in Pali, it's expressed as anatta. And the word anatta literally means without self. And what it's pointing to, what it means, what, 
what the insight is is that things and again it's 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 very much related to the change and the unreliability what it means is that things exist the way they do because of relationship to other things okay things exist the way they do because of relationship to other things so just a simple example this this bell and just by itself it's just a, a tin bowl it becomes a bell when it's in relationship to this okay and similarly we could say this is a bell striker but it isn't unless it also has the bell so the two things depend on each other okay they depend on each other they exist only because of the relationship and anything that we can taste smell touch hear think about see anything has that characteristic it only exists because of relationship to other things everything is conditioned by other things and in all of this when i use the word things one thing in fact the 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 fundamental thing that's being referred to is this thing this thing i call me me this thing that's called norman sitting here the way that the way that norman is right in this moment is totally dependent on and shaped by countless conditions <coughs> if you weren't here this norman wouldn't be here i'd still be in the hermitage on retreat <laughs> You know, if the microphone weren't here, those of you at the back probably wouldn't be hearing. If um, I hadn't had parents, this Norman wouldn't be here. Um, you know, if um, the way I am right now, if it were um, a warmer day, I wouldn't be wearing this sweater. Would change who I am in this moment. There, there are there are countless conditions that we can identify that are affecting each one of us in this moment, and there are countless conditions we can't identify. And our very being. And the very being of any object, of anything, is because of all these other conditions. Everything is interconnected. It's all interconnected, interdependent, non, not separate. It's separate in appearance. We're all separate in appearance. We're all separate in our personalities but each one of us our personalities have been shaped by other conditions conditions in the past 
conditions right in this moment. Sometimes our personality is shaped by conditions that we imagine in the future as well. An example of, of anatta, of this, this conditionality, this interconnectedness that showed today, and, and I think many of you actually felt it without knowing what you were feeling, was when Brad had us doing the walking in the Qigong. Did you notice how, for so many people, as the walking progressed, it went into a rhythm, and, and the walking got kind of united. It started out, it was kind of a jumble. People were kind of shuffling around, juggling to find space, and, and moving around, and, and stepping at different times, and different lengths of steps, and gradually it started to come into a kind of harmony. How many noticed that? How many felt that? This was anatta at work, being conditioned by the environment and by the, by the others around us. And in that, in that, in that anatta, in that coming into harmony in that way, there's a very intimate relationship. A very intimate relationship. And I think some of you, some of you really felt today in the silence, in the non-communication, a sense of connection with everyone else here. And that, that sensing of that, of that connection is a sensing of the anatta, of the non-separateness. It's a sensing of that not-selfness in the sense that this self doesn't exist separate from that other self. And the, and, and, and the, the relationship is, is, is so, so intimate. Our, our perceptions, our perceptions give us the sense that, give us the, the impression, we have the perception that I'm here and you're out there. And there's a perception of separateness. There's a perception of a gap. But the reality is, or at least Anatta tells us, there is no gap. There's no gap. Brad was saying that everything is space, it's all space, but in fact, there's no space. <laughs> there's infinite space and there's no space at the same time. There's no separateness. The um, one way of, um, of explaining this is in seeing an object. Okay, so there's um, <coughs> there's this um, the recorder with these bright red lights on it out there, and there's my eye, my eyes here, and the eyes see the object, and the perception is that the eyes are here and the object is there, but in fact, the seeing of that object can only happen because 
the light waves coming from that object make contact with the eye. There's a perception of separateness, but in fact, the, the seeing can only happen when there's that contact. And in that contact, there's non-separateness. In that contact, there's such an intimate relationship that there is no separateness. There's no gap. And and to and to, to 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 really understand that, to really know that through insight, to really know that through insight, it means that those things that I perceive as being out there that I want to get, maybe I don't have to try so hard to get them. Maybe I've already got some of those things. The things that I have that I like and I struggle to keep them, to hold on to them. Maybe I don't have to struggle so much. Maybe there can be some spaciousness, some allowing, some acceptance, some being with, rather than trying to keep. And the things that I don't like, that I want to get rid of, in the understanding of anatta, I see it's not up to me. The more I try to get rid of it, the more it sticks, the more sticky it is. And so the understanding of anatta, it just brings this this freeing, this releasing. The understanding of anatta also is very important in the context of the Buddha's definition of intention. It becomes important because in understanding anatta, in understanding our non-separateness, in understanding how we are so intimately connected and intimately interwoven, it brings out caring, kindness, compassion. It brings out non-harming and non-ill will because I see that you and you and you and you and you and all of you are not separate from me. If I want happiness and peace and liberation for myself, it must be for everyone. And so this understanding of anatta, this understanding of, of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha, and this understanding of impermanence, of anicca, these, these three insights have tremendously powerful impact on the way we are in the world. It's not about the sitting on the cushion. It's not about moving your arms around. It isn't, it isn't. It's not just about that. It's about how do we sit on our cushion in the world? How do we move our bodies about in the world? How do we walk in the world? And these three insights bring out, bring out the renunciation, the non-harming, and the non-ill will. 
So we practice. We practice by by applying mindfulness and investigation. And to a very large extent, that's all we need to do. And in a a way, it's all we need to not do. It's all we need to not do. Get intimate with our dukkha. Bring interest to our dukkha. Investigation. Come to the understanding. Come to insight. The insight that truly liberates and brings dukkha to an end. And hopefully in these in these short days here, it may seem like it's just a little over twenty four hours since we began. It might seem like a long time since we began yesterday. <laughs> it's been a long day. But it's really very little. Five days is very short. It's a very short time, but it's plenty of time. Insight is not dependent on time. It can come in any moment. All it requires is to be awake. So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.